0: This device, isn't a spaceship, it's a time machine. Goes backwards, forwards. It
1: takes us to a place where we ache to go again. It's not called the wheel. It's called the
0: carousel. Hello and welcome to the Carousel Podcast. This is Isaac Simpson. Um, I am here today with Marty Phillips, a writer in our scene who I just discovered. Welcome, Marty. Hey,
1: thanks for having me.
0: Of course. So so you came in from a recommendation from our boy T.R. Hudson who I've had on my podcast twice now, Uh great writer, uh, also has two books. You have two books.
1: Mm, one yeah.
0: book is called Millennium and the other one is called Let Them Look West. And I, I definitely want to hear about those books. I haven't read them. Um, but I think what's really interesting about you in, in the brief amount of time I've gotten to research you is... Uh, you're very, very serious about the craft of this. And you're great. You're a great writer. Incredible ideas. But you've left Twitter. You've kind of left the scene. And I want to read a quote from you about this. But um, it seems like you've kind of left Twitter to in a way, get away from some of the kind of clickiness and, you know, everybody blowing smoke up each other's ass kind of elements of frog Twitter and and that kind of thing, as well as just the distracting nature of it. Do you think that's true?
1: Yeah, that would be a rather correct analysis of it, I'd say. I mean, part of it too is it's not just like the kind of weird interpersonal relationships and the like you said the clickiness to an extent I mean part of it too is just the nature of life on the timeline you know living it as this virtual ex- weird sort of virtual extension um of everyday experience it's distracting but it's also I find that it kind of affects the way that I experience things um partly in with uh, the cycle of like the next big thing, like what's what's happening, everyone has to give their hot takes. I think that to some extent, fundamentally, there is a conflict between the goal of the writer who's trying to be very serious about what they do and the career of a internet poster. I mean, I think some people can balance the two, but I think there's a fundamental difference in the goals of the two. And so... In the interest of putting as much focus as I can onto one of those two things, um, I'm always going to side with writing um, long form and um, eliminate the uh, distraction of the posting career as it were. So if, I, if I'm if i ever in a situation where I have to kind of choose between the two for my own sanity or whatever, I'll, I'll always choose um, long form writing and and not being kind of part of the... Um, current happening conversation, I guess.
0: Yeah, right. I I think that that's an interesting decision and we should talk about that somewhat and how you found your way to this originally. I mean, I've had a bunch of writers in our scene and and particularly in sort of the sub scene that I think you're in um, on. So I've had T.R. Huds and I've had J.L. Mackey, I think there's probably a couple, Uh, you know, I've had the Prudentialist on who I I listened to some of the episode of you with him. I had Dan Baltic on um, and Matt Pegas, actually. So so a lot of those those people. Um, So, you know, I think that this movement, I've always said the new right, the E right is a literary movement first, uh, more so than it is anything else. Um, Do you think that's true?
1: I think it's true in a sense, with a caveat. I think it's literary. Well, you have to take into account how broad are we talking? Because there's different genres of interest in writing. And big chunks of that are people who, well, you know, there's like the book posters, people who are always finding obscure texts, making translations of things, which I think is also very important to give historical context. There's people who like consuming literature or reanalyzing literature um, or kind of featuring their favorite uh, literary figures. And then there's people who are directly involved in what they would like to be the creation of literature uh, or their own literature. Um, whether it's part of part of a a group process or a kind of shared mind space or political mind space or what have you. And that section or segment, I would say, of the different disparate parts of what would be considered the online right is a relatively small um, fragment, I would say. Um, But I think it is somewhat accurate to say it is literary because I think uh, whether it be a historical canon, translation, uh, rediscovering old work of, of other authors, most people are at least somewhat involved tangentially in one of those arenas.
0: Right, it's funny because it's like, as we turn this page over into this entirely new world with entirely new problems and new threats and everything like that, which it seems like that's kind of what's happening with this new millennium is like art itself. I think it's kind of like what I see is happening is we got into the most advanced place art could possibly get, which was large scale films that have 15 minute credits because 3000 people worked on them, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's like, here's the, the 45 people in Hawaii that worked on the, you know, some small part of the film. Right. And these were the most elaborate works of art you could ever imagine. Basically. Um, and now, like, we're almost going all the way back to the very beginning, you know, because now we're like age of Aquarius. We're in this new, entirely new paradigm where everything is different. And so we're going back to like the very, very basics of like philosophy and like criticism. And like, like I feel like the, the, the online right, like the dissident right, which is becoming like the art of our time, clearly. It's like this really analytical, dry uh, kind of art, right? And it feels like it's almost like the most basic form of art. It's like the most kind of pared down.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, in the purely like mechanistic political sense, I think that there's a a fundamental difference between different forms of art. I mean, literature, if your goal is just to get as many eyes on something as possible and have some sort of virality in the technological sense, literature is definitely not the way to go. (laughs) Because, I mean... there's all these memes about how, okay, yeah, millennials do read, and like the percentage of people who are considered themselves readers is still, you know, a significant percent of the population. But the, the quality of what people are reading and the types of people who are reading and the reasons for them reading are completely different. Like that's shifted into a much more, you know, pop consumer oriented, which has also been around for a long time, though arguably the quality of like the mid century, you know, pulp fiction is still significantly better than what's considered that now which is you know basically reddit fan fictions or people's renderings of their dungeons and dragons games into novel format or or what have you um so i think that that uh the reason one of the reasons why there's a uh, some sort of a, a retrograde in some ways is that the the people who control a lot of these like whether it be um, movie studios or platforms for, uh, making your own like content on the internet. I mean, people understand the virality of that and how, you know, easy it is for someone to just, you know, click through the algorithms and then find something that they would perhaps not want, you know, their ideal consumer to see. So I think there's a lot more, um, there's a lot more care taken about gatekeeping, um, the highly liquid forms of media i would call them which is you know tv shows um films whether they whether they be you know hard to access like big scale productions or even some of the smaller art house films and uh television programming and all that it's hard to crack into any of that because people understand you know how uh low the barrier to entry is as far as um, taking something away from it experientially. Whereas writing, I mean, reading literature, someone has to sit down, you know, open up a book if you're one of the people like me who has to tactilely open paper pages in order to read properly. But I mean, it, it, it takes work. Whereas these other forms of, of, in some cases, truly artistry in the case of film, you just can just sit back and let it wash over you. It, it's much more easily to easy to fall under the spell of it, and so there is much more care taken to kind of head people off at being able to enter into those spaces. Um, and I think that's one reason why um, there's kind of a a dry fallback to kind of more analog forms of media because there's not as much interest in in protecting them from you know, ideas that the uh, mainstream types find disagreeable.
0: Right. I think that that's very true. I think that that's why so much of this stuff is able to survive is because it's hidden behind layers of philosophy that the normies can't get their fingers into. Right. I think that that's what, but on the other hand, that's also part of the reason uh, on the other hand, that, that works the opposite way too. Right. Because, like nobody noticed at all how insanely woke the universities had gotten right because the everyday average person has absolutely no interest at all in what some fucking dumbass m- academic is saying right mm-hmm. so th- that those institutions were able to get so rotten before anybody noticed right Whereas people only started noticing Hollywood getting rotten. They noticed very quickly because as you're saying, we all kind of have a stake in movies. You know, we're all interested in them naturally. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember when I, I first noticed it. my, my wife went to Sarah Lawrence and I remembered I was stuck in the car for some long trip and she had like a, a paper that, she was supposed to read or something, and it might have even actually, so she went to USC grad school. Maybe this was when she was at USC grad school. Anyway, I got my hands on this paper, and I just started reading it, and it was some white woman basically arguing – this was like the first thing she was assigned in some class – that like violence against white men was needed. and it was like a long treatise about how like oh yeah well we can't you know we have to do violence is actually on the table we need to do it because oppression has lasted for this many years and blah 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 and i remember reading and being shocked like what the fuck like this is seriously what you're learning in this class that has nothing to do with this at all and uh i just think that stuff was able to go on for so long because it was sort of hidden from the normal people
1: well, in the ways that it became unhidden was uh, the earliest forms of it were actually pretty nefarious because I would say the fir- a lot of the first contact that normies got with some of this stuff was actually not being shocked and appalled at how horrifying it was, but having the ideas kind of titrated through these, these different uh, uh, like websites and forums. Like when when we talk about the woke stuff um one of the first things that comes up is tumblr culture people talk about tumblr culture and it's like well there's a lot of non you know non-college grad like normie young people in the millennial generation who are in their you know their early 20s when tumblr's heyday and like 2010 to 2012 around there who got a lot of that extremely far left kind of communist and like gender stuff through you know shares on these tumblr sites which wasn't a a top-down academic thing and you didn't even have to be part of these milieus necessarily i mean it could just show up on your smartphone when you were you know scrolling around and so i think there's two there was two sorts of different tiers of normies being confronted with it there was the people there was the boomers who are very out of the loop and only have heard about this stuff in the last year or so. And then there's their children who didn't even have to go to college to get it. They could have heard about it, you know, on, on Reddit or Tumblr 10 years ago. So I think there's a dynamic too, generationally where the younger generation got it earlier and it felt fresh and new and on the cutting edge of technology with all these, these new websites and social media platforms. And they experienced it in a positive way, which is, was more dangerous obviously so
0: were you on tumblr back then no not at all you, no. so you, you never experienced that firsthand
1: no i've i've read uh, people have like kind of done um retrospectives on it um i mean i was i was the age around the age at the time where if i was into that sort of thing then i could have seen some of that stuff but I've never really been, you know, super technologically savvy. And it was never really one of the things that interested me. So I kind of missed that boat as far as seeing the uh, the trash fire firsthand.
0: Okay. So you weren't, were you a very online kid? No. So you weren't. So you weren't like, yeah, I, uh, I heard you talking on another pod about growing up in the middle of nowhere and spending a lot of time reading outside.
1: Yeah, I was not a uh, internet child. Yeah, me
0: neither, man. I'm coming to this late, but okay. So you have this great quote here. I'm just gonna read this quote. You, you're a very dynamic writer. You know, you're. I was, I was really expect when T.R. Hudson told me to find you. I was really expecting something completely different, and I wish I had been able to take more time to digest your work because once I started reading it today, I was like, oh wow, this really deserves more of my attention than I'm giving it. Um, So I'll get to that later. And maybe you can come on again next time you publish something. But I'm glad that we're establishing this uh, relationship anyway. But you have this little piece of writing about why you left Twitter that seemed to me like a good uh, sort of place to start a conversation. So you say... There's a relationship between having a posting career and a gaining publicity for other projects. This is you, right? You're not quoting anybody in this, right? You're quoting no. yourself. Yeah, email. yeah. 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 Okay. So there's a relationship between having a posting career and gaining publicity for other projects. And these feed into each other despite being fundamentally at odds. To be a discarnate, you love this word discarnate in your, in your, uh, Work, you talk about discarnate a lot. I don't even know what discarnate means, but does well, mean it? Like a,
1: a- it's a reference to it's a term that Marshall McLuhan uses a uh, lot when he talks about being a, a being in a um, digital platform. You aren't using your body to communicate anymore, you aren't a singular entity, you become uh, fragmented and abstracted from yourself.
0: Uh, okay, got it. That's what discarnate is, and it's funny because your thing the the story you shared with me um uh which is great very highly recommend this dream catcher which which uh, he shared with me which is kind of it's it's zero hp-ish but it's also about the afterlife and it's you know of course there's comparisons to black mirror but the, but the imagery in there is so strong you know the the moments where you talk about You know, the constellation of stars you're seeing from the afterlife that the images that you capture are really, really imaginative. So I would highly recommend uh, it's it's sci fi, um, but philosophical and kind of experimental. It's great. But it's about the funny thing is it's about a guy dying and becoming discarnate. And then you kind of died in the digital world, too. Right. Because you left Twitter and everything. So in a way, you're in the afterlife. But, uh, okay, so you say there's a relationship between having a posting career and gaining publicity for other projects, and these feed into each other despite being fundamentally at odds. To be a discarnate being of the timeline is ephemeral. To write stories with the intent of them lasting and meaning something over a longer time scale takes an entirely different, ed- different ethic. In some ways, it is necessary to avoid the former in service of the latter. The digital being is fundamentally unserious. The internet is architecturally ironic. The writer must open himself to ridicule by the very nature of practicing his art. Sincerity takes on an uncanniness on the internet. It's always suspect. Mixing the two modes of being is absurd in my estimation. In this sense, I choose authenticity over publicity. So you say this, which is kind of your manifesto, mini manifesto for leaving social media. And but simultaneously elsewhere, you say you do miss the instantaneous feedback of Twitter, right? Which is completely an addiction, by the way. Yeah. Um, So in some ways, I totally agree with what you're saying here. And in other ways, maybe I would push back. But maybe you can just talk a little bit about your experiences with the Internet, how you found this group of dissident right wing writers, and then why you left them, at least in terms of the Twitter sphere.
1: So my my story of coming across like right wing Twitter and dissident spaces is you know very similar to most people, and that's that I I don't know if I maybe had some accounts recommended to me by a friend or or what what it was back in 2015, but it was centered around the uh, 2015 2016 election because I mean that was the biggest thing happening in America. It was probably the biggest thing that had happened. Um, other than 9-11 in my life as far as the absolute volume of people talking about it and it being so 24-7 that it was basically inescapable. And so that was what got me on Twitter in the first place. And that was really my only first introduction to um, kind of non-mainstream right-wing thought or even like uh, post-left thought or, or any of those different groups. It was much less categorized early on in 2015. It was much more just a loose affiliation of people who were talking about kind of what were at the time seemingly new or or renewed interesting ideas about politics and, and um, it was when the whole NRX stuff was happening. So, I mean, that had been going on for longer, but there were people talking about it on Twitter. And so for me, it was all rather new and rather interesting and uh so i guess as far as introduction to that sort of stuff i'm probably more on the normie end because i didn't i mean i didn't come from you know a sallow forum or or even 4chan or any of these places where where people there'll be like cross pollination and people will kind of move between these different platforms um i any of my interest in interaction with all of this started with Twitter. Um, and that's why I primarily stayed with Twitter. And then, you know, leaving Twitter is kind of more momentous for me because it's really the primary platform that I use to kind of interact with people and read up on the latest stuff and kind of get gauge other people's thoughts and ideas on certain things. And so
0: well, were you were you a politically leaning person? I mean, were you attracted to this because you were like, fuck, I'm right wing and I hate the rest of culture or are you saying you just got kind of shuffled over there because for friends recommendations of I mean like yeah, how did you find specific like where do you sit in the political sphere?
1: Well, I've always before the I've always been pretty politically apathetic, um, and that's it's a function of multiple things. I mean, part of it is kind of a an overwhelming pessimism that I have. Um, I tend not to talk about politics because it just becomes gloom and doom posting. Because I tend to be of that of that disposition, I, I suppose. Um, but i was i was definitely more of like a kind of right libertarian along the like the ron paul lines i i followed ron paul pretty closely during you know 20 2008, 2012. um not because i was necessarily interested in involving myself in politics but just because it was interesting and i i agreed with a fair amount of things that he was saying i mean ron paul was Definitely too libertarian for my taste, even though back then I would have considered myself a libertarian because there was always things he would say that would, you know, catch my attention and be like, eh, okay, well, I I don't agree with that. Where, I mean, he'd be talking about- ending Taxation the Fed. is theft. <laughs> yeah, well, he'd if be talking about- If they
0: take $1, they're stealing from you.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've never been like an anarcho-capitalist. I mean, he'd be talking about ending the Fed, which I'd be like, oh, that's pretty cool. And then a couple of minutes later, he'd talk about how, like- having a wall in the Southern border is just as much about keeping us in as it is keeping people out. And I'd be like, eh, well, I mean, I, it'd be kind of nice to have like a wall on the Southern border though. So it's like, I, I was never, you know, a through and through libertarian in any sense. I was definitely always more on the right side of uh, right leaning side of that. Um, but I've never been particularly interested in politics and um, uh, or involving myself in politics outside of kind of um, analysis of some of the ideas and and the trends that I find interesting, and I I mean, to talk about the pessimism. I mean, I think that we I, I think that we live in kind of. a I wrote this article for the American Sun a while ago about the simulated politics, and I very much think that politics is just an entertainment product. And I know that's a very kind of you know nor, normy middle of the road centrist thing to say um but i think that there are um i think that there are mechanisms in place that have been very purposefully put up to make politics a walled garden and and people spend a lot of time and energy voicing their political opinions which i think in the end don't really amount to a whole lot It's going to actually happen.
0: Yeah, I mean, we learned that with Trump one, right? I mean, it was—it's not like we elected him and then boom, it was suddenly anything changed. I mean, still nothing changed, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, right. I mean, like, who knows if it happens again? But i I tend to I tend to agree, but I also, you know, again, I kind of this goes back to the point I was making in the beginning, which is. we're, we're in such a weird world where things have been the way that they were for so long. And I think that politics were exactly what you were saying. They were very much uh, downstream from culture. Right. Um, as, as uh, um, what's his name? Breitbart famously said, but now that's all changing. Like, you know, I see sound of freedom and and I see that movie nefarious. I read stuff like what you're writing and I'm just like, we are experiencing a movement in which politics does matter. I don't agree with these these right wing frog guys who say, um, "Don't make your art political." I don't. I actually don't really agree with that. You know, what I mean, like or, Orwell always said, "All of my art is political."
1: Oh, I disagree with that too. Yeah. I, I think that it's a cope to an extent. Because I think that if your art is undeniably good, if you're undeniably talented at what you do, then it doesn't matter. Like if you can have. Yes, there there are right wing artists, there are, you know, racialist artists from from centuries ago who your most left-wing person will admit that they are undeniably talented and they are uncancelable for their politics because they are so talented at what they do.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, I also think that that's what's great about what you're doing is you you say a lot like you seem very, very dedicated to the craft of what you're doing. So like, you know, you you had a, a good quote on something where you were like, we're too nice to each other. You know, and that's really true. yeah, our guys are way too nice to each other. you know we 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 accuse the other side of being hyper socialized, but in fact, we have almost no mechanism for real critique and review, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like uh, man's world, no review, basically, passage press, you know, very little because it's an award anyway. So we don't really have that culture of like being really rough on each other or being really rough on each other's writing, whereas they do have that on the other side. You know, they are fucking hard on each other's writing. I mean, The New York Times, say what you will about left wing journalism. They're the only ones who are making I mean, not they, but a few among them are the only ones who are making any attempt at actually like rigorous fact checking and rigorous editorial at all. I mean, we sure as fuck don't do that.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, one of the difficulties is there's like this kind of infinite celebration mode going on yeah. where everyone wants to lift all boats simultaneously because they, there's such a dearth of kind of right-wing creativity out there that they just want to flood the zone with as much as possible, which that it, I think that that is welcome to an extent because if there's an absolute vacuum, then you have to create a playing field at it, through which people can kind of bump into each other and maybe bump elbows occasionally and th- then begin improving themselves. Um, but I mean, a lot of these focuses of of right-wing thought and, and the scene in many ways is there's, there's a lot of critique, but it's, it's very small scale, very much just throw a quote tweet on this guy and dunk on him you know it's in the context of the conversation about the current thing it's not someone sitting down and reading someone's you know 300 page novel and giving them notes on it and giving them some hard truths that there are parts of it they didn't like I mean there's some of that I do have a few people that I have that I send my stuff to and, and I trust them to read it and give me honest feedback but it's not it's not necessarily happening in a wider kind of scene way seen both in s e e n and s c e n e in both senses and that it's not happening openly and honestly i think to the extent that it could be
0: yeah i mean we need to figure out a way to make it happen and you're you're totally right where i love what you said perma perma celebration mode you know i mean that's really like what we're what we're in we're gonna win you know we're we're all we're all like supporting each other and we're gonna win except you know what the fucking frogs love or you know what the our guys love is drama they fucking <laughs> love drama they love yeah. it more than anything else they cannot get enough of who oh somebody you know dox this person and they are somebody who's a fed and this person said this and somebody blocked so and so i swear to god they fucking love that shit they're like little baby girls they cannot get enough well it
1: doesn't help that the internet like social media is a fundamentally like female coded space like it the the group chat dynamics the it just creates like a this Infinite sewing circles, really. Whether you, whether you're actually a woman or a, a guy online, you kind of get forced into a female mold of infinite gossiping, et cetera.
0: Yeah, and, well, and it's also it's a it's a it's a beautiful one syndrome thing. And what what I mean by that is the you know it's like uh, guys who are isolated from the real world. You know what I mean? And it's like they they. they, they like they spend so much time preening and like framing themselves, you know it's like no, nobody is more fucking dramatic and girlish than like right wing bodybuilders dude. It's like they fucking <laughs> you know, they love talking shit and like who you know who who's who like who's friends with who? like they really are like high school high school girls from from what I've seen um So yeah, okay, so where were you at? when you quit, I mean, we're, you're you're completely Nothing could be more damaging, you're right, than the Twitter mind on the, the writing, right? Like I've had very successful blogs over the past few years, you know? And my, I've, I've grown a Twitter audience pretty well. You know, I have like almost 12,000 followers. And it's funny to notice, like, sometimes you'll get a tweet that'll get a million views and you'll get no followers. Sometimes you'll get a tweet that'll get way less views and you'll get a thousand followers, right? Like why do people Mm -hmm. follow you for some things, not for other things? In any case, the entire dance is a massive addiction, right? Like if I was smart, I would be blogging all day, every day, because that's the stuff that really like moves the needle for me, but I don't do it because I'm stuck on fucking Twitter being an idiot. (laughs) Uh, So you're, you're totally right to, to do what you're doing, but here's my question for you. Isn't, twitter a little bit like a part of the art of what we're doing right now like is there such thing as a tw- as a writer today that's don't you kind of gotta be like doing that as part of the art itself i don't know i mean what do you think
1: i don't know um i wouldn't say i'm technophobic um which is you know ironic since i spent so many years on twitter but i've always even when i started trying to write seriously i early on i kind of had this reticence to include too much reference to technology and and contemporary you know techno culture because there was something to me that about it that just seemed very um ephemeral kind of tacky almost um, and I, I definitely got over that as far as choosing to write about topics that kind of get more deep into those things. But I would say the, the, the process of decoupling for the sake of, of distance, I think to me is a greater incentive. I understand what you're saying. I think maybe in my more Twitter involved periods, I would potentially agree with you that posting Um, is can be an art form and um, creating a a body of work and identity as a poster um, can be can be important and there are people who I followed before where I mean I would check them frequently just because I thought that they had very interesting things to say I I don't just mean you know quote tweeting news articles about the latest thing like they they kind of had a kind of forming body of work over the course of their analysis of things and their their threads about their thoughts and ideas and kind of their own philosophy about things. So I think there's definitely a value to that. Um but I don't think I have the um time and uh mental capacity in the sense that I maybe it's just cuz I'm getting older but I just don't think I can do both at the same time. And I i mean, it, it, when you look at the timeline and you look at Twitter and social media, one of the things I was mentioning in that, in that passage is just that the timescales are different. Like you kind of have to all, be always on to an extent to keep up with social media and to keep up a reputation there and keep people's eyes on what you're doing. Because if you kind of fall behind then you know people will lose interest in you relatively quickly. But I think with long form, but with writing fiction and with writing novels, you kind of have to resign yourself to an extent that if you're gonna be be successful, there's a chance that that's not even gonna materialize until after you're dead. I mean, you kind of have to. You kind of have to make peace with that idea that you know there's a lot of. we consider to be phenomenal writers of literature who were never really widely recognized until you know after after they were dead um and so you kind of have to be at peace with that as well and that's not to say that that i there's not a future time where i you know get less busy or i'm in between projects and you know come back to twitter temporarily i i do that i've left for you know five six months at a time and come back Um, It's kind of always been my MO. So I'm not saying I would never come back. um, But I think that you kind of have to be very purposeful if you're one of the people like me who can get easily lost in the static of trying to kind of work in two forms at once. Um, You kind of have to be uh, very certain when you need to step away to work on other things.
0: Yeah, which is pretty much almost everyone, right? I mean, like... Very few people can do both, you know, so you can really focus on one and, and not the other, especially if you have any sort of day job at all, right? I mean, it's like, yeah, you really can't, you really can't be both a poster and a serious writer. I mean, how's the book sales? Like, have you been able to... Because that's the thing. I mean, like the thing about Twitter is it's marketing. You know, I mean that's that's a little yeah. bit of the. That's why I was I was really expecting you were going to be a completely different person because the people who aren't on Twitter, I thought you were going to be like an old guy. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> I, I thought you were going to be like a kind of boomerish, like you know that type, uh, because that's usually who I'm used to being. Like, oh, here's my blog. And I actually fucking love your website. I love just the simplicity of the the yellow background, which is very iconic. Like, definitely don't change that. It's fucking sick. But you also don't have like an about page on there. So I'm just like, yeah, there's no about page. So I I can't like find your books and shit. So I'm like, oh, this guy must be like a boomer. But then once I started reading and writing, I was like, oh, shit, he's like really serious about this. And, it, you know, it was also funny. You had ads on there, which was a little unique, right? Um, Yeah,
1: that's more that I uh, don't take the time and the investment to like go full, full try hard WordPress, (laughs) as opposed to using just the basic functions.
0: Yeah, right. But the ads, do you put the ads on there? Or is that because you're getting some kind of free version?
1: Yes. Cause I'm using them like the most uh, basic WordPress. Yeah. Oh, they put their own ads on it.
0: Oh, that's so funny, dude. Yeah. So you're <laughs> like a monk, bro. You're like a purist. Like you're just like writing, like that's fucking all you're doing, which is dope. You're going to, you're going to come out of that. You're going to come out of that really good for it because you're working on the style and you're working on the quality. And that's what very few people do. You know, they just assume I'm great at this and then they don't actually do the work to get really good. So, I mean, do you have people in your life that are giving you harsh critique?
1: Well, like I mentioned before, there's a couple people who I met online through right-wing Twitter and, and um, over the last couple of years who I do, I will send um, segments of stuff to, or, or portions of drafts to get their feedback on it. And, um, Fortunately, there's a couple people who are give me relatively fast responses and are not afraid to, you know, say if there's a segment of something they don't think works or what have you. So I think as, as far as that goes, I was fortunate to, um, to get with my time on Twitter to get acquainted with people who, you know, are take, take their giving of input um, seriously, um, which is good.
0: Yeah, well, that's good. You need that, man. Um, so your first book is called uh, "Let Them Look West," which is about a uh, very obviously Jewish uh, journalist who is going to talk to this po- populist pop- politician. And um, of course, again, I, I really wish I'm, I'm going to order it. What well, you you price it kind of high, thirty two bucks, huh?
1: Oh no, um. That's the, the only version available on Amazon is the hardcover. So
0: oh where do I get the soft cover Animal Hill? Yeah. Oh nice. Okay, cool. Um so w- yeah, and he goes to uh talk to a um politician in the south, I think, and like a populist politician. So so why was this the first thing you wrote? And then, because later you shifted more to sci-fi, but I'm guessing this is not sci-fi.
1: No, it's not.
0: Okay. So, yeah. So, why was this the first thing you wrote?
1: So, it was the first thing for two reasons. Um, the, The first was, I think I started writing it probably around 2018, which was when the, for many people, the... Trump disappointment really started to set in, you know? It was, I can't remember when it was in 2018 or 2017 where uh, he, there was the whole potential government shutdown and he basically just gave all of his enemies exactly what they wanted and like signed everything and was like, well, this is the last time I'm doing this. I'll never do this again. And it's like, wow, thanks for the like verbal promise, bro. Like you literally backed off of everything.
0: Yeah. Uh, I think I remember that. I think I remember there was like a moment that was like right when he got rid of Bannon.
1: Yeah. And it, it was like, my,
0: suddenly he was like, yeah, I'm doing everything that they want. Yeah. I think I remember this.
1: Yeah. And yeah so where it was, it, We
0: were like, none of the things that he said he was going to do <laughs> was he going to do. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. And so part of it was kind of dealing with that in that, like, okay, well, what can you even, what can you even do politically? Like what, what does he even look like? because in the preface of in the preface of the book i describe it as uh, i think a mundane fantasy which is like the idea of fantasy ha- has multiple meanings and it can either be a self like a self-gratifying kind of image of your of your desires projected into story form or it can just be something that's not you know realistic to our to our current world and so i, I framed it as a mundane fantasy and that it's it's something that's not our world but i did my best to research and make it as realistic as i could within the context so um it is yeah all the king's men yeah it, all the king's men was definitely a big influence is actually probably my favorite american novel um i
0: couldn't get into it man i've literally tried reading it like four times and i just cannot i can't so, make yeah. it first the, the, you know, how do i get into tell me how to get into all the king's men what, what am i missing
1: um I don't know. It's it's one of those books that immediately immediately grasped me and I loved it all the way through. So I don't know if it's I don't know if that sort of appeal is transmissible. <laughs> but cuz everyone has a different taste when it comes to literature. So I
0: don't know why I couldn't get into it. It's like I should love it, but I just for some reason I just can't I can't like it doesn't spark the fire. I don't Is I don't it the know pacing?
1: Cuz I've always been a huge fan of Southern lit and they take their time. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so it's like, I no, I don't like Southern lit. It's true. I, I love, I mean, of course I, w- I want to say I love Faulkner, but do I really love Faulkner? I mean, I, I love some things about Faulkner. I don't know if I qualify as a Faulkner lover. I mean, the best short story about LA ever written is by Faulkner. So I like kind of, you know, I like kind of have some clout in reading him and and i totally get the long sentences of faulkner but yeah i guess i just can't really who else is southern like who who else are you talking about
1: um well i mean the shorter form everyone or a lot of people always reference flannery o'connor oh right um, yeah I like, I, I... and then uh yeah all the king's men Penn warren was was southern and then there's yeah. uh w- walker percy also is another b- relatively big name for southern lit
0: yeah 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 um uh yeah okay so all right so all the king's men keep going
1: so yeah it all the king's men was definitely a pretty big inspiration um as far as i guess as far as like I guess, overall subject matter, because it's definitely, it's definitely very different from all the King's men, um, the dynamic and the, the characters especially. Um, but it was, it was partially, as I was saying before, dealing with like kind of the Trump disappointment. And then also, um, it was my buckling down and trying to just finish something with polish that was something that interested me, but was not, too big in scope that i could finish and you know consider done and so that was a part of it too it it's uh i think it's like 270 pages it's not super long so i wanted to pick something limited in scope something that was kind of that i was dealing with as far as the current political scenario and that i could uh finish and consider done just to kind of cut my teeth on something which isn't to say that it wasn't a story and characters that I was very invested in when I wrote it, but it it's just to say that the reason why that was the first thing that I completed was because I thought it was, in my own kind of perfectionistic way, something I could actually finish, you know? And other other ideas I've had floating around in my head or I've been working on for years, I would probably still be working on and would have never even tried to publish, um, yeah. just because, that stuff takes time and if it's one of the things that you've been tossing around in your head for you know eight years or whatever it's you're going to be that much harder on yourself when it comes to finishing it
0: yeah Yeah, it's funny because you know t.r hudson also has a you know his first book is totally sci-fi and then his next book is this like political book have you read his books
1: I've read, um, automaton. I have a copy of the perfect and the wicked, but I just, I haven't been able to crack. I have like a bunch of books from people that I've been trying to get into. And then I just haven't had the time because I have other books that I'm reading for research currently that, you know, kind of take priority. And so, yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, so uh, he he also has one political book and then one sci-fi book. Not that you have a sci-fi book, because I actually don't know what your millennium is about. But your thing that you shared with me, which was great, was like very sci-fi, like extremely sci-fi, right? I mean, uh, the, you know, the, what's it called? The uh, Dreamcatcher is like, that's like very like classic sci-fi, isn't it?
1: Yeah, 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 I would totally. say so,
0: right? I mean, it's just funny that both you guys kind of touched in both of those buckets, you know, but you kind of flipped both of them. Um, are you planning so? So, yeah, I mean, okay, so how was the reception for Let Them Look West?
1: Like, how did it go? Um, I got a lot of positive feedback. Um, I I got a lot of uh, quite a few emails from people telling me that they, they read it and what they thought on it, which is actually preferred. You know, I was, I, I had mentioned before that it is nice to get some of the immediate feedback on Twitter. You know, people can just reach out to you instantaneously and, and let you know that, you know, they've read something of yours or what have you. But what really sticks out to me is when people actually take the time to like open their email client, you know, and, write five paragraphs and uh and then hit send like that to me shows that someone's investment or interest in it is uh at a level that um they actually take the effort and so that's what i always really like is getting emails uh from readers but um yeah let them look west uh, did decently well um the way I, it's funny the way i always talk about about writing in, in my book, for me, at least, um, writing is kind of a, uh, it's a hobby with a extremely high opportunity cost, but (laughs) I love doing it. So like, I mean, if if you want to be one of those, like super economically minded people, then there's a lot more, you know, lucrative hobbies or side gigs that you could undertake because, Um, When you do the math you're making like you know five cents an hour (laughs) for your time, but it, it really helps when it's something that you love doing and something you've always wanted to do, and then any money that you make off of it is just a bonus in that case.
0: Yeah. Right. No, I, I totally, I, I don't mean like, you know, how did it do in terms of money even really? I just mean like, how was the experience of publishing it? I, you know, I mean, did, did you have, I made the the horrible mistake of, I published a book that is on Amazon. I don't tell anybody about it because it was the first thing I ever wrote. It was like, I did this in absolute reverse of what you should do. You know, I just, cause I, as you've said, I was craving the feedback so much, you know, I was, I wanted the feedback and and I didn't have that many people I could really like trust with writing my writing. So I just like outsourced that to the, to the masses, you know? And so I published a book without really any fucking, I, I had no idea about frog Twitter or anything um, a while ago. And I regret it because it wasn't, I wasn't a good writer yet, you know? And now I can't get rid of it. It's just out there. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. I don't know if, did, did you have a, a lot of input from friends and stuff, or were you just like, screw this, I'm getting it out.
1: No, I had a, I had a um, a pretty significant amount of input. I mean, the the way my writing process, which I always caveat with, I wouldn't recommend to anyone, but what I'll always do is I write everything out by hand first Um because and then i'll transcribe it into a word document from being written by hand because that gives a first edit um without um just just moving it from page format to in a word document um allows you to completely redo like prose and whole sections you know without already getting into that technical space of oh i'm working on grammar i'm working on this or that you can easily cross whole sections out and And move things around easily before it even gets into a word document and maybe this is just my own weird way of viewing things but when i have something in a word document i'm way less likely to you know delete whole sections and move try and move things around maybe it's a tactile thing that i was never really you know much of a computer internet person until later in my life i would much rather do that in the process of you know moving from the tactile physical to the digital um as opposed to trying to do that afterwards. And then after that, I'll usually print it out um, in a big brick of paper and I'll do a uh, colored pen hand edit and then I'll yeah, and then I'll move i'll I'll edit the document subsequently because that's just easier for me. And then by then, when I have like a second draft, I'll usually send like a PDF to one or two of my one or two of my close friends um, who will, uh, give me kind of more general prose notes, and then just kind of a a long list of like page this, look at this page that, look at that. Just kind of like a bullet point list. So then I, on my next edit, I can go back and use those as little touchstones to move in between. Like okay, these are obvious, you know, typo or or word mistakes that need to be fixed. And then I'll usually with that input by probably the third or fourth edit, then I'll be considering, you know that I'm, I'm nearing the end. Um, But it's a long process. I'm, I tend to, I tend to edit something at least three times before I consider it um, really like a workable draft.
0: Yeah. But then, yeah. Okay. So then do you give to friends and stuff? Like how do you have people that are your like go to people or?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I have both both people that i've known for years like not on the internet and then i also have a few people that i met through frog twitter and other you know parts of the internet um and i'll usually at least get one from each to look over something
0: so who are your like frog twitter faves if frog I, twitter you know, faves yeah is that a is that a gay question You're like you know who do you like who are you inspired by
1: in uh, off the top of my head it'd be hard to come up with names off the top of my head just because i'm not i can't like scroll through twitter yeah readily but there's a lot i mean there's there's old heads who've been long gone <laughs> you know um yeah the you're the piece you sent
0: is very similar to zero hp right
1: yeah i always follow zero hp um i mostly thought he was a very entertaining for his uh dunking on uh overweight women and stuff like that i always found that to be (laughs) mostly entertaining yeah
0: you could use lose weight yeah
1: um as far as like people who i think so i always like geo I know. I think you've had Geo on your show before. Yeah, I had him. On, I
0: went on his show, and you went on his show, I think, too, didn't
1: you? Yeah, he's definitely more in like this the theory cell arena, but very I good. mean, very much so. But that's kind of the side of things that has always attracted me more, um, and so I, I find that that sort of thing very interesting. Um, let's see, before I left last time, I was I started following the last things for a while. Um. Yeah, and I, I I liked what he was posting, as far as like older old like old heads. Um, it's like so hard for me to think of names now because it's been so many years since some of these people have been gone. Mm-hmm. Um. Uh, but this the thing is, like early with early on Twitter, a lot of it was just mixed mixed up with just like um, kind of oh how to describe it it's just like there's a lot of kind of like internet um like prank type culture i don't know if prank is the right way to put it but like running you know running ops on the libs and stuff like that that were just very amusing like i don't know if you i don't know if you've been on twitter long enough to remember the character john crumb
0: yeah well wait john crumb no no who's john crumb
1: Oh, he was like back in 2015, he he did all these things like he would, he would post post pictures and claim that certain things would happen. Like, I think he posted like a picture of a bloody sink and claimed he got assaulted at like a, a movie in a movie theater or something. And would get all these p- people riled up. It's just like, and there was a lot of that earlier on, you know, in that, in the Twitter space that was much more just just generally creating you know creating phenomenon just to get reactions from people um yeah. which was tied in a lot with kind of the early right-wing adjacent twitter um that are i mean a lot of that stuff is because it was around the time of you know like the he will not divide us and there was all that stuff kind of the internet kind of 4chan cross-pollination like internet prankster type stuff Um there was much more an element of things early early on. So it's the whole kind of adjacent scene has evolved so much that that I mean, I could reference old old heads from back then, but I mean, it's so different now that I'm not sure if contextually it would really really line up with what the scenes kind of become. Yeah. or even if it's even the same scene.
0: How long have you been off?
1: Oh, I don't remember. I, I think I I left like three three months ago or so. Oh, okay. I was I was on Twitter for a while before then, um, and then uh, I was uh, I lost an account or something. I can't remember. And I was off for probably three or four months at some point then too. Um, so it's just you know it's just been kind of like coming back, going away, coming back for different periods of time
0: yeah yeah totally so uh all right well, so if not frog Twitter, then who are your faves from real life <laughs> like fave writers
1: um I'm trying to think I've actually I have been reading a lot of fiction lately. I've been reading mostly nonfiction um for research. One of my faves in the nonfiction world it that I come back to frequently is probably um, is like a neuroscientist named uh, Jay Allen Hobson. It's kind of niche, but he actually, he and another guy developed the uh, AIM model of dreaming, um, which is something I find deeply fascinating and um, something that I want to incorporate more into um, some of my other fiction.
0: What is that? The AIM model of dreaming?
1: Yeah. It's a it's very compelling It's actually, I mean, I could go on a whole diatribe um, about the AIM model and kind of my thoughts about what that has to do with art and literature, because I think there's actually a fair amount of interplay between the two. Um, I mean, by way of like a short explainer, like AIM, AIM just stands for, I think it's activation, input, and uh, modulation, I believe, the three parts of it. And... It basically just refers to how the brain operates in REM sleep and he developed like a 3d model with different quadrants based on these three axes and so like activation is just the determination of how activated is the brain like how how much is going on in the brain as far as like electrical impulses and that sort of thing at any given moment um because like the during waking hours, your brain will be very activated. And during REM sleep, your brain will also be very activated. But during different forms of sleep, um, the brain's activation levels fall significantly. So there's an interesting dynamic where both during waking and during dream sleep, activation is high in both cases. And then the I in AIM is input, which has to do with what is the input going into the brain at the current moment? So like when you're awake, that's going to be your senses and that sort of thing um, like visual auditory. And then when you're asleep, the brain actually switches inputs. So it's an internal input. So, Mm -hmm. you know, like a a really loud object being dropped in your house is going to wake you up in the middle of the night, but you know, a medium, medium volume noise that's not, you know, dramatic and sudden isn't going to wake you up because your body has switched off um its its senses so it, your eyes are closed your eyes are not actually perceiving anything you're not actually you know hearing anything outside of something that's going to you know jolt you awake and then modulation is kind of the the part of the model that's not very well under well less understood than the other parts and it has to do with neurochemistry And so like when you're awake, there's um, the, I think it's aminageric system, which is a chemical process with the neurotransmitters and basically what chemicals are taking supremacy during that state. And then when you're in REM sleep, it's the um, collageneric system, which takes over. And so there's a difference in the kind of chemical state of the brain between dreaming and being awake um the fundamental similar similarity being the activation is the same and so his theory is basically gives this great quote which is um about um people who are like psychotics uh, that they're actually have an imbalanced brain and that they're hallucinating because they're experiencing a bleeding between of the dream state and the waking state and so he says that some of us go crazy and the rest of us just dream in that like this function for them has been fundamentally broken in a way that they're unable to discern between the hallucinated dreaming state and the actual like output, input mechanism of the senses. Mm. And so, I mean, one reason why I find that so interesting and why I think that ties into art and literature is because, um. Well, to go back to McLuhan for this, Marshall McLuhan likes using the example of, um, there's a story by Edgar Allan Poe, which is, it's I think it's called The Descent into the Maelstrom. And it's about this sailor who's getting pulled into this whirlpool vortex. And he sees all these different objects being sucked in and some of them like disappear and some of them float back up to the surface. And so he determines that the the way he can survive is if he... Finds one of the objects that floats back up and grabs onto that, which means he'll keep coming back up and be able to, you know, survive and breathe, as opposed to the objects that disappear. And McLuhan presents that as um, pattern recognition as a form of art, or art as art as pattern recognition. And I think that that can be applied to the idea of the motif. So in art and in the history of art there's the motif like there's the repeated scenario or the repeated image or the repeated situation if it's in literature or what have you i'm not necessarily talking about genre fiction but i mean if you want to take it back to something like genesis there's meeting the woman at the well like that's a motif that happens in multiple stories throughout the old testament of the bible um if you want to view it purely literarily um and so I think that repetition of the motif is also something that appears in dreaming. Like we all experience similar motifs when we dream. Absolutely. Like, Absolutely. like you're being attacked by some guy, and you, yeah. you know, you have a weapon, but it doesn't work. You know, we've all had that dream. Or I had a long dreams.
0: period where I had recurring dreams about Kanye West. It's <laughs> <laughs> very weird. It's funny that we're talking about this because I'm wearing a Kanye West shirt right now. But, uh, yeah, I don't know why, but I had, like, really intense Kanye dreams for, like, <laughs> like, yeah, I was always meeting Kanye. And then I really ran into him in real life. And then the dreams went away. It's weird. Weird. Anyway, keep going.
1: So, yeah. Anyway. Okay. So,
0: yeah, motif. Art is motif. Dreams is motif. Keep going.
1: Yeah, I was just saying that, I mean, we, we have similar motifs in our dreams. There's, like, a lot of people will have the same sort of dream where, like, you know there's a college course that you're taking or a a class and you realize in your dream that you never showed up to the class all year long or all semester long and you have a test coming up and you're completely unprepared for it or yeah a lot of people have
0: that right the yeah the, the school the no clothes at school dream we've all had yeah
1: or that was, I was going to say earlier, you're being attacked by someone and you have like a weapon and when you try and fight back, it just doesn't work. But it doesn't
0: work. We've all had that dream too. Exactly. So, so
1: the motif in that sense is not, I mean, it exists outside of the conscious state. It's like an exo process that has to exist outside of just our own process of passing down, you know, literary motifs. There's an idea of the motif that's outside of our control, and is fundamentally part of the process of very basically neurologically being human, because our our brains create motifs whether we're conscious or not. Um, and so that's one reason why I like the aim model, and that's one kind of the way I apply it to to art and the significance of art is that I think that there's a very fundamental desire to you know create these these repeated stories throughout history. That's not even necessarily under our direct control.
0: Hmm. So, but, but what's the larger point you're making about the aim method? I mean, so first of all, what what is, is this? I'm confused about what the motif thing has to do with the aim method.
1: Oh, it, it just has to do with um, the input output gating being internal as part of it. So, you're not, you know, the, the brain is creating motifs without, you know, access to exterior. No one's handing this to you. Your brain is creating simultaneous motifs that other people also possess.
0: Okay. So, it's without, kind of... without
1: directly communicating with them.
0: Right. So, it's something about the structure of the brain.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, structure of the brain and then just to say it more generally, being a human being.
0: Ah, I see. So the reason that we create art in a certain way is because we have this certain structure. And so we're sort of externalizing this structure.
1: I think that that is either a big part of it or it's a negative image of it, you know, because there's the there's the waking, which is the very conscious motif of you. You read a story you're influenced by it, and then you write something that has some thematic similarities. And then I think that there's an unconscious form that that continues um with or without our input on it in an active sense. So I think it's fundamental to the process of how our minds work and work over time. You know, in the active sense is generational. In the inactive sense or in the sleeping dreaming sense, it's just an automatic process.
0: Yeah, right. No, I, I hear what you're saying. It's like, we're sort of writing that out there. Um, you know, it's, it's a little bit like, um, you know, Kant and I don't know if you've gotten into philosophy, but like a time and space are ways in which we organize the world kind of and you're saying that this is like kind of a way of organizing experience all right so this is what this guy is a is a writer and he writes about this aim method
1: yeah just about also about neuropsychology in general um yeah i mean i would his book the chemistry of conscious states is really good i usually is the one i recommend um it's funny i the only reason why i came across it because i was in a used bookstore one day and i was just kind of looking through the the general just section of unorganized books they hadn't they hadn't indexed yet and i found it and it looked interesting and it was an old like dog-eared copy from like the 90s or 80s or 90s or something um and so i just bought it on a whim and read it and i thought it was like one of the most interesting things i'd read so that's when i started looking more into him and reading some of his other books
0: Wow, that's so random! (laughs) Yeah, just found on a shelf somewhere, and it became integral to your understanding. Yeah, I think the science stuff is um, is definitely interesting. I mean, I'm personally a creative nonfiction writer, so i I dwell in the nonfiction world myself mostly, and I've got. You know, I say this everything I do is about propaganda, but really that's a, that's a propagandistic sales to tool myself because really what I want to be doing is like gonzo journalism, which I used to do. I mean, I used to write for vice and shit. So I've like kind of done that stuff. Um, but all right. So that's your nonfiction guy. What about your fate? Fi- like who's your fiction top three? You know, I mean, like what are the best books you've read?
1: Well, all the King's Men is up there, like I mentioned before. Um, that I think is... You
0: said something really cool on another podcast about how you keep people like out of your head when you're writing because it's very hard to tell like when somebody's parroting somebody else, you know?
1: Yeah. Well, and yeah. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, I, I think I remember that. I was thinking I was talking about how when I write, I typically only read nonfiction um, just to kind of overwhelm myself with context on subject matters that I'm writing about. Yeah. To kind of, yeah, let myself kind of go my own direction with it. Whereas between writing projects, I will read fiction because I just enjoy reading fiction. Um, I mean, I'm, to to say that there's not someone, or to say that you're not influenced by other writers in the in the fiction realm, would be you know a massive conceit and and ridiculous. Yeah. Um, so it's not in the sense that I'm just trying to uh, avoid influence. Um, I just find that reading fiction at the same time that I'm working on something. Wires tend to get crossed. I find myself using, you know, common phrases that other writers use in a very kind of direct sense.
0: Dude, it's so... How many times have you po- picked up the book of a amateur writer, right? Or somebody in our scene, or not even in our scene, just any time. And you pick it up and you read three sentences and you imme- I immediately am like, okay, they're trying to be Blood Meridian, you know? Like, I, <laughs> I can just immediately tell, you know, they because the thing about art is you know you uh it's really good art is really inspiring right mm-hmm. so like yeah. a lot of a lot of my first shit is totally like that i mean it, it took me 10 years to be a good writer you know to be like a really good writer and my early shit is so much like borrowed for whatever whatever i'm reading that day and you can yeah. see it in there. It's like, oh, I'm Bukowski today. And then like, oh, I'm, you know, uh, uh, John Fondi. I mean, they're the same, so that's not fair. But like, oh, I'm, it's, I clearly was into Steinbeck at this moment. Or like, oh, I had clearly just read Lolita. Like, I can tell even then, like, who I'm inspired by. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think that a lot of people don't like to hear this people who are just first getting into wanting to write fiction but you have to write a lot and you have to throw a lot of it away and, and tell you before you start kind of getting comfortable with writing your own process because like i early on i i wrote like multi-hundred page manuscripts and looked through them afterwards it was like oh, i'll put this in the back burner for a while maybe come back to it and like see what i think about it and would just come back to them and be like okay this is going directly in the trash can like this is i spent like a whole summer writing this this is terrible (laughs) like you have to get to that point where you've written like where you've written thousands of pages and thrown half of them away yeah and then you're like okay then then you start kind of doing it um automatically and you're going to carry those influences with you um just not as explicitly. I mean, yeah, you... yeah, yeah.
0: I think that's really right. It's like you get in this zone when you first start wanting to be a writer where you're parroting. Yeah. And you're really, yeah. And then it takes a very long time to get to the point where you understand your style and the things that you care about. You know, as, yeah, for sure.
1: And then I'd say as far as favorite writers, Thomas Pynchon is also up there. I think Pynchon was the one who actually kind of got me over the tech phobia in my writing because reading uh, his. Wait,
0: what Pynchon should I read? Tell me the pin, what Pynchon I should, I should actually read. Give me some Pynchon. <sighs> I've never, I've never ever read anything by him that I got into.
1: Um, So That's I would say I if you him. want to get into reading him, I would recommend starting where what used to be like the, you know, high school curriculum book of his, which is, uh, the crying of law 49. I would say,
0: um, yeah, 1965. Yeah. In 1965. It was Jesus Christ. What am I going to, what, what, and it's all weird, right? It's all fucking weird.
1: Yeah, it (laughs) it is. Um, another one of his books that I really liked was, um, uh, inherent vice i thought was pretty good i i wouldn't i wouldn't get into inherent vice first just because it's longer it's longer and it's it's not I, it's not as tight as crying of lot 49 i would say it take it there's a lot more kind of meandering and like it, it's more it's even more pinching i guess you could say
0: right.
1: um, how about gravity's rainbow the gravity's rainbow i haven't read it's that's the thing it's it's like the uh Gratis Rainbow is like the infinite jest of like the you know people yeah. who like earlier writing, right? Yeah, um, it's like the tome, the indiscernible tome. That someday, hopefully, I'll get the time to go through it. But that's right. like that's like the big pension work. What about like,
0: Mason and Dixon? What was that? His. Um, I remember my father reading that as a, as I was a kid.
1: Was that earlier or later? I don't no, Later, much later. Much later. Oh, okay. Yeah, I would say crying a lot 49 is probably the place to start, probably because of it. I mean, his style, you're either gonna really like it or be immediately repulsed by it. And it's one of his shorter works, so it's kind of quicker to get through, and you can kind of immediately determine if you're a fan of pension or not.
0: All right. I'm ordering it. I'm gonna listen to you what what else you got for me here i need so you know it's the holidays i need some stuff to actually read i barely read anymore i pretty much listen to everything on audiobook now because i don't i actually... think there's
1: some i think there's some books that definitely are very I, there's some people are like sticklers for the uh for only reading and if i'm you know physically reading with my eyes i'm i'm going to you know read oh, a totally printed printed out book on a page But as far as there's some people who are total audiobook snobs, but I'm actually kind of a split mind on that. Like some books I think are actually very, very good um, as audiobooks because due to this style they're written in is almost more of an oral style. It's almost better to hear it um, read out loud.
0: Well, there's um, a weird thing that everybody agrees with, which is that you can't listen to fiction as an audio book, but you can listen to nonfiction. And I completely agree with that. Like I cannot listen to a fiction book on audiobook. Never. I've never been able to do it. It's always not enjoyable, but like I can listen to like Ernest Shackleton's voyage like a hundred times and I'm completely (laughs) engaged in every, in every second. So I don't know why that is, but there's something about fiction because I guess it's just like the artistry of fiction, right? Which you don't really get that on audio.
1: Yeah. I think there are exceptions. I think that um, some uh, styles that are more lyrical, um, not even in the sense that they're poetic in a structural sense, but in how they're written, um, can actually lend themselves to audiobooks. I'm not saying it's better in all cases than reading the book on the page, but I think there's yeah. some authors that lend themselves very well to listening, um, but it's obviously not all of them.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. It's like almost like a different, it's like a different medium almost. And and it's like you you need to write for audio kind of, you know, it's like, you'd have to be kind of like a different type of person. It's it's an interesting, uh, it's interesting. I think the audio revolution though is like almost just getting started. I think it's going to be a big, you know, because it's just so easy now. You know, I yeah, like, uh, I did a trip up to Northern California and I didn't use my phone at all for like three weeks, but I did, I took these really long hikes with just AirPods, I listened to all of the art of the deal. on like two hikes that were like four hour hikes by myself. And it was like the mixture of AirPods, which are very low impact and like overwhelming nature was extremely satisfying. It was like, I was like, wow, like this is actually really what technology should be. Like you should be Mm -hmm. overwhelmed with nature with just like the slightest bit of technological, like, you know, intervention and <laughs> yeah. I, I feel like uh that's like more and more audio is going to be kind of like the thing people turn to yeah yeah not sure okay give me one more writer that you like and then we'll be um done.
1: It, as far as more sci-fi influence goes um philip k dick i would say is definitely up there yeah Um yeah. So. yeah probably as far as like primary influence as far as sci-fi writing it would be Philip k dick yeah
0: okay cool so are you going to stick with sci-fi then? now
1: no i don't so i don't really consider myself to be a sci-fi writer i like to i like to dabble in it occasionally um it's the categorization, you know, genre fiction, literature, what even is all of it? It's just <laughs> a, a lot of that, like categorization, is just so arbitrary in some ways. Because there's, I mean, when you you have things like Dune, which are like, yeah, it's science fiction, but it's more literary than most science fiction in a lot of ways. And so I think some of that is kind of arbitrary to an extent. Um, but I do enjoy I do enjoy writing science fiction. Um. I would say maybe speculative fiction as an umbrella, as, because some of that can involve, you know, potential futures and you know alternate alternate realities or like or different versions of reality, while still, you know, somewhat maintaining a literary conceit, I suppose. Um, but I I don't think I'm overly qualified to write science fiction. Um, in part because I was definitely more partial to fantasy when I was younger. Um, and so I don't think I have as much of a background reading science fiction, nor do I have more of an interest in it outside of the contemporary issues, I guess, that it presents. Um, so we're, we're talking like not, you know, the space age concerns, but more, you know, the concerns of the consumer technology realm
0: yeah yeah, yeah totally. I, I hear that I hear that being uh you know, a little resistant to being categorized, but it is true that from a marketing perspective, you know the narrower your category, the easier the spark is the the easier the launch is because y- you buy points the you know the fur- the further you can get into a recognizable genre specifically a popular one, the more you will have instantaneous followers. Right.
1: But yeah. the,
0: the ceiling is lower. Like the floor is much higher, but the ceiling is much lower. You know, it's like, yeah. if I wanted to be a true crime podcast, I would Im- immediately have, you know, <laughs> yeah. a, a thousand followers, but then you can't ever get outside of it. You know, then forever you're a true crime podcast or like for the rest of your life. So, Yeah. Um cool brother. Well, dude, thank you so much. You know, I really I, I love your writing and I can't wait to read more of it. I'm oh let me actually go and order uh I'm gonna go to Antelope Hill and order one of your books right now. Which one should I start with? Should I do uh what do you think? Millennial first, millennium first or uh the other one first?
1: Um it depends. I mean it, it just depends if you're interested more in because Millennium is it's a novel, but it's split into four different sections that have you know different kind of unrelated characters and Mm -hmm. thematically it's one story though not like in a plot progression sense so it's more kind of fragmentary and a little more um experimental whereas let them look west is you know it's very much its own singular story all the way through yeah i'm partial to millennium i think it's better not that the writer's opinion matters really i think we've we've learned that <laughs> um but that's the one i'm more partial to but really it's up to personal personal taste
0: all right well i'll give it a i'll give it a shot i'll give it a shot i really enjoyed what i read in the um in the uh dream Catcher. i think i think you have a great knack for you you write it at a good speed and you set up these images very well you know you set up these gorgeous images that i assume come into your imagination somehow um that seem very advanced you know like uh like some of these technical images you've had seem like extremely well thought out which you probably have the space for because you're not tweeting all day (laughs) like i am yeah um (laughs) anyway all right man well dude thank you so much for joining and i'll send people your way uh on the links and uh yeah thanks man
1: sounds good i appreciate it i'm glad you like the story cool peace yep